Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for everything you've done for us. Um, I pray that you would be with the time that we have together. I pray that you would uh, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before I get started, um, I want to say uh, a word. Like the, There are two men that are stepping out off of the trustee board, and that's uh, Dwayne Schumann and Jim Chitty. They've been trustees and I guess we used to call them ministry leaders. The trustees, we call the trustee is the new covenant. The ministry leader is the old covenant. We don't go by the old covenant anymore. We're the trustees, the new covenant. Um, these men have served this church for decades now, 20 years. Um, and I, I so appreciate their service. And I so appreciate um, their heart for God and their, and their desire for what's right. Um, I appreciate all of the, the trustees and all of the deacons. Um, you know, three years ago, um, when I became pastor, uh, we, we, we gathered in that East Room back there, and I got, we made promises to one another. We said, I said, we're going to do what's right to the best of our ability. Um, and that's that. Um, and hopefully we've kept those promises. Um, and we've made promises to you that we're going to shepherd this church to the best of our ability. We're going to try to do what's right. Um, and so hopefully we've done that. So if you have your Bible um, today, we're going to be um, continue our, our study in the book of, of Luke. Um, I want to read the first few verses of uh, chapter 3 of Luke. Was now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar of um, of, uh, of Tiberius Caesar, um, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of yeah, I can't pronounce that word, so we're going to move on. And the region of uh, another word I can't pronounce, and another word I can't pronounce. Verse two. And Annas and Caiaphas, being uh, the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all of the country about um, Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the prophets, of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley should be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and brought, and, uh, and the wrought ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall be, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Verse 7, and then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. Now, again, let's, let's keep in mind, this is the way he's beginning his sermon. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I know when you go to seminary and you, and you take homiletics um, and you take sermon delivery, um, they probably would frown on you calling 
the congregants a family of snakes. Um, that's the way he begins his sermon. Verse 7, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. I say unto you that God is able um, of these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Now, I make the point that John begins this sermon that way because I want to underline the fact that John was a weird guy. How many of you know a, a believer who's kind of weird? How many of that believer sitting next to you? I noticed that you right here kind of glanced to your right. Um, John was a weird, he, he lived in the desert. Um, he dressed in camel skin. He had a camel skin tunic and he wore a leather belt and he ate locusts and honey. Um, he lived in the middle of nowhere. He was a strange guy. Um, now, my point of making, my, my, I'm not making that point to say we should be like John. We should all be strange and weird. Um, some people take um, the verse in Peter where it says God has called us to be peculiar people, and they take that to heart, and they, and they act just really strange. Um, they're always trying to get us to, to buy into their, like, their crystals or their, like, their essential oils. I don't mean to offend anybody, but um, some some Christians are strange. John was a odd duck. Um, but I make that point to make this point. It's just because somebody is an odd duck doesn't mean that God can't use them. Right? Um, I, 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 I find it uh, it's weird. I don't call anybody strange or odd because I'm strange or odd myself. Um, so I, I want to just make that point off. He was a strange guy. That God called. Um, he came from a strange beginning. Now re remember um, his parents, um, they were elderly people and he had like a miraculous birth. Um, and so he came from a strange beginning. He, he had a strange calling. He was called to prepare the way of Jesus. So I, I want to get into a couple of things about John today. I want to talk about um, his, um, like the historical setting that he found himself in. I want to talk about um, kind of like his ministry, and I want to talk about his message. Does that make sense? So let's look at the historical context. Luke does two things here. He first sets the story of John in a historical context by drawing our attention to the political environment of the day. He points to John's place in redemptive history as well, but Specifically, in the first few verses, he, he points to um, where John found himself in the social and political environment of his day. Now, before we move on, I think it's important that we kind of do the same. We must understand our social and political environment, shouldn't we? Um, and, but what is more important is that we understand our place in redemptive history. Um, it's, it's important that we know about politics and we understand politics, but what's more important is that we know our place in redemptive history and that we know our calling. Um, what I've found over the past few weeks is a lot of Christians are real sure about politics. But when it comes to their place in redemptive history, um, I don't hear much about that. 
It should be the opposite. We should be concerned about what we are about as the people of God. Um, we are about God's plan to save mankind. So John sets the historical context. It's important for us to understand the historical context, but it's also important for us to understand the eternal context. Does that make sense? So what's the historical context that John found himself in? We'll read that in verse, a few, first few verses. Verse 1, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Now, once again, Luke clues us in on, again, the historical surroundings of our story. Uh, we are told that the events that we are told took place in the 15th year of Caesar Tiberius. Now, because of the way Tiberius came to power, um, this date is hard to fix precisely. Um, when the Roman senator, uh, when the Roman Senate declared um, Augustus emperor, they did so under the condition that his power would end with his death. So, rather than, um, so the Senate said, "Hey, Augustus, you're you're the emperor." But when you die, you can't pass it on to your son. So in order to get around this, um, Augustus circumvented this by um, appointing a co-regent on whom he planned to gradually confer um, his imperial powers. Now, when he outlived his first choice for successor, Augustus selected his son-in-law, um, his son-in-law Tiberius, whom he adopted and made heir in A.D. 4. Now, now, Tiberius was made co-regent in A.D. 11, and then when um, Augustus Caesar died, he automatically became um, emperor in around A.D. 19 or 14. So um, what the date here is probably around A.D. 28 or 29. Now, besides Caesar, Luke mentions four other governor, government rule, rulers, right? He, he lists um, Pontius Pilate. Pilate was a Roman governor, governor responsible for the providence of Judea uh, from around A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. According to history, Pilate's official title was prefect, which was a military commander um, who commanded an auxiliary of troops. Now, originally, one of Herod's sons was in charge of Pilate's territory, but he did such a bad job that people asked for him to be removed, and then the Romans installed Pilate, who was cruel and greedy. Um, if we can use a word to um, describe Pilate's tenure as governor of Judea, it would be turbulent. Another ruler that Luke mentions is Herod Antipas. Herod was the half-brother of Philip, um, he was the son of Herod the Great, who would have been dead, um, who would have been dead around this time for about 20 years. Um, Herod Antipas um, was in power from BC 4 to around AD 39. Um, he also mentions Philip, but he also mentions the high priest. Now that's really boring, and we got that out of the way. But he also mentions the high priest situation. He says Annas and Caiaphas were both high priests. Now, this seems odd because it seems to suggest that there were two high priests at the same time. Um, now, what, ha what will probably happen is that Annas was high priest first, and then he got removed by the Roman government, 
and then his son-in-law Caiaphas was in his place, and high priest was like a lifetime position, and so it was kind of like how we call the former president Mr. President. Um, they refer to the high priest. Once you're a high priest, you're always high priest. Now, the reason I take time to, to mention that is that everything about the Judean way of life had been corrupted by the Roman government. Everything was dominated by the Roman government. Um, the, the high priest was supposed to be a descendant of Aaron. Neither Caiaphas or Annas was a descendant of Aaron. And so the, the worship of God had been corrupted. Um, everything had been corrupted. So by way of summary, we can characterize the Roman government under three headings. It was massive, right, in that it covered the known world. Number two, it was corrupt and that leaders of the government stopped at nothing when it came to staying in power. And number three, it was cruel. Now, when we think about our government, this is not a political term, right? It's not polit it's not, I don't want to make a statement about politics as far as Republicans or Democrats, but our government is massive, right? Um, our government kind of seeks to control some of the way that we worship. Maybe not overtly, but covertly, people in government want to control some of the ways that we worship. Right? Um, um, I could foresee in the future where um, the government would try to maybe stop us from worshiping. Um, but back then, the government was cruel. In other words, they crucified people um, mercilessly. Now, it is in this backdrop that John begins his ministry. Now, today, again, I want to talk about two, John, two aspects of John's ministry. I want, to, I want to note the miraculous nature of his ministry, and then I want to talk about his message. Now, when I say miraculous, I don't mean John performed any miracles that we know of. I'm not... Um, I'm not referencing uh, the miraculous. I'm also not referencing the miraculous events surrounding his birth. What made John's ministry miraculous was that he spoke the words of God. Notice verse 2. It says, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias. Right? This is how the prophets were described in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. What Luke is doing here is he's underlining the fact that John was a prophet. Now, the people of God had not heard from God in over 400 years, right? They had not heard from God in over 400 years. So the fact that John was hearing from God represented a miracle. Now, I want to briefly make a parallel between John's ministry and ours. Um, John did. However, we do hear from God. Um, we hear from God through the Bible. Now, it's because of this, right? It's, it's because of this, it's because we have God's word that we also have a prophetic ministry. Now, not prophetic in the same sense that some of those crazy people on TV that claim that they can predict the future, like we know who's going to be the next president, or I, let me tell you weird stuff about your life. But prophetic in the sense 
that we say what the Bible says and what God says about the Does it make sense? Like, in the sense that we read the Bible and we say what God says. Now, so often we hear the objection about Christians in the Bible like this. We hear this objection. The Bible was written 2,000 years ago. Therefore, it has no bearing to live today. Now, well, that's true. If the Bible was a man-written book. The, the, the laws written by Rome, they don't really have any bearing. They were written 2,000 years ago. But they were written by men. But if the Bible is God's word, then it has everything to say about what we should do and how we should live. You see, the person who makes that kind of objection, objection is guilty of something called begging the question. Now, uh, begging the question is when an argument assumes the conclusion instead of supporting it, right? An example, a good example of begging the question is when the divorce lawyer asks the husband on the stand, when was the last time you beat your wife? Does it make sense? In other words, he's assuming a conclusion without proving a conclusion. A begging the question is when we take our opinion and we put it up as a fact. Does it make sense? I have many opinions, but that doesn't mean they're facts. Some of you are of the opinion that dogs are better than cats, but that doesn't mean that that's a fact. Some of you are of the opinion that pie is better than cake, but that doesn't mean that it's a fact. Some of you are of the opinion that the Green Bay Packers are going to the Super Bowl. But that doesn't mean that it's a fact, right? These are just opinions. Do you like how occasionally I just attack him? He's done nothing to provoke me, and I just lash out at him. I don't know what that's about. Um, I'll pray, pray about that for me. I don't know what I don't know what to do with that. When somebody says, well, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, it doesn't have anything to do with how we should live. That's just their opinion. Why should I take their opinion over God's word? Essentially what this objection is, is another, it states as fact your opinion. Um, if the Bible is God's word, then the Bible is the most important document in the world. Now the question is whether or not it's God's word. As Christians, I think we have evidence and arguments that support the fact that it is God's word. Um, I think all of the, the big questions in our society can be answered by answering this one question. Get, did God write a book? Right? If God did write a book, we should go by what that book says. Um, like God says um, about what he says something in his book about how marriage should be, Right? and how marriage is defined. Now, if this is God's book, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. Does it make sense? You see, we have a similar ministry to John the Baptist. He spoke the words of God, and we should speak the words of God. He spoke the words of God without apology. We should speak the words of God without apology. Right? Now, having said that, 
that doesn't mean that we can be a jerk about it. Does it make sense? There's, there's a way of stating a fact, right? And there's a way of stating a fact in a rude way. Like if somebody asks you, hey, does this make me look fat? Like you can, there's a way to say like, well, no, actually it's your fat that makes you look fat, which is a fact, right? Which is true, but that's a bad way to say it. Does it make sense? There's a way that we are to speak the truth. But we are to speak the truth. Well, so-and-so doesn't like it. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't like that they don't like it. Um, but my official title here is not Happy Fun Guy. I'm pastor of the church. And that means that I speak the word of God, Right? We're, we're, we're Christ followers, right? And we, and we speak the words of Jesus to our culture. Now, how many of you remember the story of John the Baptist, right? Um, he, Herod was, he took his brother's wife, right? And then John the Baptist preached against him. And what happened to John the Baptist? He got put in jail, and then he lost his head. Now, when John was preaching against that, do you think that he thought, well, nothing's going to go wrong. I'm just going to be able to, to say these words, and everybody's just going to love me. No, he knew that there would be consequences. A guy that begins his sermon, you family of snakes, knows there's going to be consequences. But our job as Christians is to speak the word of God. We have a prophetic ministry and that we say what God says. I don't state my opinion about what the future is going to be. I say what God says about the future. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that we just speak the words of God and we speak the truth without apology just to people who are outside the walls of this church. That means that we speak the truth and love to the people inside this church. That means I have to be willing to say things that you don't necessarily like. Now, it would be very easy for me to get up here every week and preach against the Democrats, preach against the gays, I can blame the blame the gays for everything. Like you're out of my favorite cookie at Walmart. Oh, the gays. What's this country coming to? It'd be easy. Why? Because none of you chances are none of you struggle with this stuff. But I, it is my job to come in here and to speak things that you don't necessarily like. And to say things that you don't necessarily like. The, the measure of a pastor isn't his willingness to offend unbelievers. 
that pastor's worth is measured is by his willingness to defend Christians. Is to speak the word without apology to Christians. And to say things that you don't necessarily like. We're all on board with that. We'll be in there later on. Um, so we talked about John's ministry, like miraculous nature of his ministry. His, nat- his ministry was miraculous, not because he did miracles, right? His ministry was miraculous because he spoke the words of God. By the way, our ministry will be miraculous if we do the same thing. Um, I'm not the oracle where God speaks directly to, and then I say things, and then you write it in the back of your Bible. That's not that's not me. What I do is I open up this book, right, and I read this book, and I tell you what the book says. And if I do that, our ministry will be miraculous. But I want you to notice his message. What was his message? His message was a call to repentance. Verse three it says, and he came into, and and he came into um, all the country of about um, Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, real quick, some people um, think that baptism is a part of salvation. They call this. Um, baptism or regeneration. This is kind of like a parenthesis. That's not what that's saying here. Does it make sense? He's not saying that you have to be baptized for the remission of sin. He, for is in light of, right? It's um, it's the um, the Greek word for is the indefinite pre- is the indefinite preposition ice. It means pointing to, not in order that. So in other words, um, when somebody goes to jail, they don't go to jail so that they may murder someone. Does it make sense? They go to jail because they have murdered. Does it make sense? So you are baptized not to remove your sins, right? Your 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 sins are you're baptized because that you because you've understood salvation and that you've understood that it's Jesus only, not Jesus and baptism. Does that make sense? So he preaches baptism for the, he preaches repentance and, um, and baptism, right? So what does the word repentance mean? The word repentance means a change of mind. It carries with it an idea of reorientation of, of perspective in order to have a fresh perspective. Um, so in order to repent, it means to change your mind, right? So today I want to talk about two aspects of repentance. In order to repent, you have to have these two things. You need to have humility, and you have to have ownership. In other words, you need to be, you need to be humble, and you need to have ownership. So let's look at the first one, humility. Um, remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32? It says this, Jesus answering and said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the first step to repentance is 
understanding the fact that you have something to be repented of. Who goes to a doctor? Healthy people? Sick people. A sick patient comes to the doctor, right, totally relying on the doctor's skill. Well, the same is true of us. When we repent, we come to God admitting that we fail, admitting that we need healing spiritually. Does it make sense? So the first part is what? Is humility. The second part is ownership. Now remember the story of the prodigal son? How he asks for his inheritance, and what does he do? He goes out and he wastes it. Right? And then he comes to himself and he says this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now notice that he doesn't blame anyone but himself. In other words, he owns it. Right? He owns it. The American church has much to repent of. We, we want to blame everybody for the state that we find ourselves in but ourselves. Why is the culture so dark? Well, the American church has not been the light that we should have been. Right? It's, look, it's, it's not the Democrats' fault. It's not the Republicans' fault. It's our fault. Right? Like, we, we have the first part down. Like, oh, we, we have problems. But we don't have the second part down. It's our fault. It's our fault. Like we, we, we don't want to take personal responsibility for the wrongs that we have committed in society. Like when, when we mess up at work, but it's, it's not my fault. If, I hadn't, if so-and-so hadn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done that, and then it's, it's just not my fault. Well, that's not repentance, right? Repentance is like, hey, I'm sorry. I did something wrong. I need help. And it's all my fault. So how do we know? See, that's what repentance is. But here, here's, here's the test of true repentance. True repentance leads to a lifestyle that's not hypocritical. Does it make sense? True repentance leads to a lifestyle that's not hypocritical. So, in other words, when I fail and I take ownership of my failing and then somebody else fails, I'm not going to throw stones at them. Why? Because I've fallen. We, we, are, we are so quick to point the finger. We, we are so quick to to point out other people's failings. But we are so slow to own the mistakes that we've made. I've done it. 
I've sinned. He could have said, you know, like if you didn't give me, you shouldn't have given me my inheritance, Father. You knew that I wasn't mature enough to handle it. Or he could have said, you know what, I would, you know, I wasn't potty trained correctly, and because I wasn't potty trained correctly, it led to some repressed feelings, and and my repressed feelings led me to be acting out later in life, and therefore it wasn't really my fault. It was your fault, parents. But he didn't. He says, I have sinned, and I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired hands. You see, the Christian life is a life of consistency. It's over and over again, humbling yourself and admitting your failings and taking ownership of it. It's not pleasant. It's very hard. And, and one of the ways that we as Christians kind of maintain this posture of repentance is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're going to do today. You see, the Lord's, what the Lord's Supper does is it, it acknowledges a couple of things. It, it points out two things about God. It points out that he is holy, that he is forgiving. It also points out two things about us. It points out that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that God is willing to save us. Um, every, every time when we have um, the, the Lord's Supper, it's a chance for you as an individual to start anew. Um, I, don't, I don't know what um, some of your weeks have been like. Some, sometimes I come to church and it's been a bad week. I know it's hard to believe like that. Like some of you guys think I'm perfect and that um, I never do anything wrong, but I'm not perfect. And I do a lot of things that are not right. Ask, ask my wife and my mother. They both agree with me. Um, it'd be really like if the dog could talk because it sees me as a unfiltered. Um, I'm glad that it doesn't talk. Sometimes I come and I've had a bad week. Um, things have gone wrong in my life, circumstance-wise. I didn't react properly to those things, and guess what? I need I need to repent. I need to come to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Um, and when we do this as a church, it gives us a chance corporately do that, to, to come to before God as a people and as a group to say, God, please forgive us where we failed you. Does it make sense? So before the Lord's Supper, um, what we should do is to just, just take a moment and let's pray in silence because the Bible says um, that in Corinthians that some people, they take the word, the Lord's Supper unworthily. It says that some people, they're sick and some people have even died because of it. Uh, and so we want to take the Lord's Supper seriously. And so what we're going to do is just, just take a few moments and confess your sins and repent of things that you need to repent of. And then we'll begin.
Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for our church family. I thank you for their heart for you. Lord, we come to you, and Lord, we ask you that you would bless us. We, we ask that you would forgive us where we have failed you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So, um, if you have your Bible, turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, verse 14, 24, um, it says this. And when he had given thanks, he break it, talking about the bread. He said, take this, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, when I, when I think about um, the body of Christ, I think about, The body of Christ. Um, I think about the fact that he had a body. He was a man. He was a person. And as a man, he came to earth and he set a perfect example. Um, how many of you have ever been let down by somebody who you looked up to? I have constantly. Um, I always tell the story. Oftentimes, when we have, I always tell the story of um, Gandhi how um, Gandhi didn't believe in modern medicine and there was a conviction that he had and his wife got sick and his conviction led to his wife dying. Um, and then he got sick. And suddenly he changed his conviction about modern medicine. And he lived. Like that's, that's a hypocrite, right? You look at all the things that Gandhi supposedly accomplished, and that just that, that breaks your heart and makes you sad. Um, he did a lot of good things, but he wasn't perfect. He did some things that are that are really questionable. But Jesus, he came to Earth, and he lived a perfect life. And so when we when we take the the bread and we celebrate the body, we're we're celebrating the example that Jesus gave us. Does that make sense? pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the example that you've given us. Um, I thank you for the fact that you've lived a perfect life and that you have never let us down. We ask, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, but here's the thing. I'm glad for Jesus' example, but if Jesus, if all Jesus did was come to, to give us an example, we would all be doing that. Right? Um, I cannot follow his example perfectly. I fall, again, I know it's shocking, I'm not as perfectly Christ-like. Neither is he. We've, we've, this week, over and over again, we failed the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But he's given us his blood. He sacrificed himself for us. Um, so that when we fall, he can pick us up. Um, again, that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's, it's a chance for us to repent anew. 
to humble ourselves and to take ownership of our personal failings and to also take comfort in the fact that God forgives us. Forgives us. He forgives us not because we deserve forgiving. He, he forgives us because Jesus died on the cross in our place. And it says in verse 25, it says, this cup is the New Testament of my blood. Do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Pray and thank God for his sacrifice. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for dying in my place. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before uh, we conclude, I, I want to I, I point out a couple of things. It says, this cup is the, the New Testament in my body, of my blood. This do as oft as you drink in remembrance of me. It doesn't give us precise specifications about how often that we should do the Lord's Supper. It just says as often as you do, you're supposed to do it in remembrance of me. As Christians, we have an enormous amount of leeway about when we do it. Um, and even a little bit of leeway about how we do it. We can get, like, we can use these, which were not, which tasted weird, let's be honest. We point that out. Um, uh, when, when COVID is over, we'll go back to the other stuff. But the reason why we, we do this even during COVID and we wanted to do it, we didn't want to put it off because it's important that we do it. It's important that we take a time as individuals and as a congregation to just set ourselves right with God and to remember what he's done for us. Now, the verse I also like to read every time is verse 26. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. The reason why he's coming back. He's coming back. Um, and you do not want to be playing around when he gets back. Does that make sense? We want to be about his business when he gets back. And so when we when we celebrate the Lord's Supper like this, is it gives us a chance to reset and it gives us a chance to just thank God for everything that He's done for us. Um, you know, I, I thank the Lord um, not as often as I should for you guys constantly. Um, you guys have been an enormous blessing to Brittany and myself. Um, it's it's not like harvest is is not just my job. You guys are my family. Um, and we're not some type of like a brother of Tim was talking about, like some sort of just kind of run like a corporate thing. Um, we try hard not to run harvest like that. We try to run harvest um, like we're a family church because that's what we are. Um, and harvest is here for us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're not here um, gathered together because we like to play music. 
right? We're not, we're not gathered here together because we all like the same hobby. We're gathered here together because we've been united by Christ and what he's done for us. And, and that means that we're willing to overlook um, our, our imperfections. Like I'm, I'm able to look at Bob, like he has this imperfection, and I just, but I overlook it, and I was like, Bob is my brother. Right? And, and Ronnie and Tiffany, I'm able to overlook their imperfections because Ronnie and Tiffany are my brother and sister. And hopefully you guys are able to overlook my imperfections because I'm your brother. Um, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And we know if we gather together and if we're serious, we'll have each other. Right? Um, I, I think about the world and and the loneliness that is in the world. So there is a, there is a loneliness epidemic in the world. We don't have to have that. We can feel together, right? And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is we're celebrating that togetherness. It's not just us either. It's those of us around the world. Right now, there's somebody, there's some congregation around the world that is celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And they're uniting around the same thing, and we are united with them. Um, so um, we like to have an invitation. Bradley, if you'll get the invitation, he is ready. Um, if you would like to come to the altar and just say thank you to God for um, his blessings, if you would like to just stay in your seat and say thank you to God for his blessings, that's also um, appropriate. So I'll pray, and then we will have an invitation. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for everything that you've done for us. I thank you for everything that you're going to do for us. I pray that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please stand. If the Lord has spoken to your heart, please come.